Today on Public Research with Daniel Schwartz, Episode 14, Israel and Middle East scholar Shale Ben Ephraim joins to discuss Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza, anti-Zionism, Iran, and the future of Israeli politics. So this is a question that I've been wondering since the start of the IDF's operation in Gaza. And I kept asking it and I would get basically shushed and people would say, there are no more tunnels, they're all closed. That's why I heard it, between Egypt and Gaza. That's why I heard in the beginning. Then when the campaign moved down south towards Rafa, then I started hearing, oh, the Egyptians don't want the IDF to go down there because they'll find that there are still are tunnels operating. And it's sort of amazed me how I mean, this, this would seem like a fundamental question that the IDF would want to know. <laughs> because if they've done this three, four-month campaign and there's been active resupply of Hamas through the tunnels, I mean, that, that seems like a huge waste. What, first of all, are there tunnels operating between Gaza and Egypt? Okay, so the thing with the tunnels at the end of the day is we know a lot less than we would want to. And by we, I mean everyone who's not Hamas. Um, but are there tunnels between Gaza and Egypt that are still functioning? Absolutely. There's no question there are tunnels. I don't think anyone knows how many, what volume is going through it. It's clear that most things that are coming in right now are coming in um, through the humanitarian supplies, but arms are, are not, and there's certainly more arms coming in. Um, yeah, the, the argument right now is what percentage of the tunnels has Israel destroyed or found? It seems to be well under 50%. Uh, possibly more like 20, 30, depending on, on what report you um, you listen to. And of course, Israel doesn't have access to the Egyptian side and doesn't necessarily completely trust the Egyptians, either in terms of their, um, um, whether they have the best intentions, whether people are being bribed, and whether they're just... Um, good enough at their jobs to find all these tunnels. The The IDF does not fully trust the Egyptians. So whatever difficulty Israel's having when they're using all their attempts to find tunnels and destroy them, Egypt is most likely not using those kind of efforts and doesn't have those kind of capabilities to begin with. Uh, and Israel's not currently on the border with Egypt, although that may change soon. They're not in Rafah and on the border, so they don't really have access to those tunnels. So the answer is definitely yes, and my guess is several. So when people discuss where is Sinwar <clears throat> and uh, why why hasn't the IDF gone Sinwar, do you ever find yourself asking, maybe he's in Egypt? That's not impossible, but I don't think so. The reason I don't think so is because uh, you wouldn't be able to hide that from the troops, the uh, Hamas troops, the terrorists, and that would lead to a crash in morale, and that would also be the end of his influence within Hamas and his reputation. And um, I, I think he's generally willing, not necessarily enthusiastic, but willing to go down with the ship. I think he's willing to lose his life in this campaign. Is The Israeli intelligence assessments that I'm hearing 
Uh, they think that he's still under Han Yunus, and they think that um, he's been cut off from most of the tunnels and communication avenues that he has access to, and Israel is getting closer. Is that true? I don't know. I, but if I'm, he was going to, yeah, if he was going to escape, I don't think he would escape to Egypt because that would be the end of all his influence. Should they have taken Rafa in the south uh, early on? Because let's say like you did everything right, but it turns out there were tons of tunnels operating way more than you thought then you've just wasted all this whole pressure campaign whereas if you had gone to the south shut down the tunnels completely maybe this war would have been over uh, a month ago yeah so you're absolutely correct that um not taking um the border with egypt early in this war was a terrible mistake in fact leaving that um, border in general was a terrible mistake. So in 2005, Israel withdrew from Gaza in uh, a unilateral disengagement move. Now, at the time, there were some people in the army who supported the withdrawal from Gaza and the removal of settlements, but said the one thing we should keep is the Philadelphia route. And Philadelphia route is the border between Gaza and Egypt, because otherwise, um, terrorists will be able to bring in whatever they want, and it'll turn into a terrorist haven, which is exactly what happened. Um, now, when this operation started, possibly the first thing Israel should have done, more likely second thing after taking over Gaza City, uh, was take that over in order to prevent resupply of the terrorists. And be able to distribute the humanitarian aid so that it doesn't go directly to Hamas. I think most people um, in the military know that that should have been done earlier. The reason it wasn't done earlier is because of diplomatic pressure from Egypt and the United States. Egypt doesn't want Israel operating there because they're afraid that it will cause a refugee crisis in Sinai. And they also don't want it to impinge on their sovereignty and ability to defend their own border. Um, but Israel's going to have to do it anyway. Might as well have done it earlier when there was a lot more sympathy from the world. And before all this, uh, all these soldiers were lost, some of them might not have been lost if the terrorists had not been supplied in the way that they have been. I'm astonished that I, I mean, I haven't heard this discussion. Is, is there any specific talk about that? now yeah yeah there's 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 a lot of talk uh about it but um there's a reason you haven't heard much about it the reason you haven't heard much about it is because that's been a um achilles heel in the government's claim that it's going all out to win this war militarily and that's what the prestige of the government has depended on because they're not offering any diplomatic solutions but they actually haven't gone all out in the war. This has actually been a serious lapse in their pursuit of the war militarily, and they know it. And they consider it a bit of a show of weakness before their right-wing constituency. So there has been an attempt by the government to not talk too much about this, which is going to change now that they're going into Rafah. Now that they're going, to, going into Rafah, which seems like it's going to happen in a few days, um, they're going to start talking about that. Other people, people who are not affiliated with the government, people in the military, just people with some knowledge, have been talking about it. If you listen to Israeli radio in particular, um, 
They talk to military experts there all the time, professors, generals, former generals in particular. They've been saying this for a long, long time. You mean Hebrew language? In Hebrew language. I'm sure you, I'm sure you can find some instances of this in English. By the way, including my YouTube channel. I've been talking about this for a while. Um, but generally speaking, this is this is a, a internal Israeli Hebrew conversation. Oh, please plug your YouTube channel. Sure. My YouTube channel is Israel Explained on YouTube. Please follow me. Yeah, I, I, I do these kind of in-depth dives, and I do it a lot of it from a military geopolitical perspective instead of a moral perspective, because I find that's very often lacking. And and for uh, listeners, Shael answers viewers' questions, so you can submit questions, and he gives very detailed, great answers. So check that out. Do my best. Um, You know, I sort of pride myself on listening to everybody. I only speak English, unfortunately. But in English language, I listen to everybody. I, I'm an avid viewer of Owen Jones to Caroline Glick. <laughs> you know, I... I, I try to do the full spectrum. So like the, I think the furthest right uh, is stuff I listen to from Israeli English languages. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. You know, uh, Jonathan Pollard has been doing these interviews with this rabbi. Oh boy. No, I did not oh, know you, that. Oh, I got to send it to you. Yeah. It's like yeah. a weekly podcast. And he, he thinks that um, it's, it, he's actually a good, uh, speaker but he's 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 like netanyahu has betrayed us you know and they hate the the idf leadership um yeah that we're, ha we're having a real problem with the right wing in israel trying to turn the idf in the middle of a war into the scapegoat for a war that the military is handling very well and the political echelons are not handling well and that's where these things like the Rafa, um, not taking over Rafa, not taking over the border, come in because it's hard to blame it on the military when the political echelon is telling them not to go. But, so that's one of the reasons I don't want to talk about it. But what I was going to say is take Glick, for instance. You know Caroline Glick, right? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so I, 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 she's useful to me because I want to know what is the Israeli right thinking. So I watch her show regularly and, um, I, I haven't heard her talk about, hey, let's verify the status of the tunnels, uh, which is, um, anyways, that, that surprised me. Here's another There's a reason thing. for that, Daniel. Yeah. These people that you're, that you're, you, all the people you mentioned are very ideological, whatever side of the spectrum they're on, and they're trying to make ideological points. They're not really looking at what's the reality on the ground, because the truth is, if you want to look at reality on the ground, there's plenty of blame to go around. There's plenty of complexity and it doesn't really fit into one narrative. Right, right, right. OK, here's another thing I'm, I'm sort of astonished by. <clears throat> As you know, uh, the IDF has had several campaigns in Gaza over the years. Right. Yes. Uh, I believe 2009, 2014. Right. Yep. Um. Why this is astonishing? We, we Hamas has created a underground system larger than the London Underground. Tunnels so big they can put cars in them. Uh, Israel is supposed to have this Mossad ama amazing intelligence capability. Why didn't they? Let's say in two thousand fourteen, during that operation. Uh, 
covertly drill down into the bedrock. I don't, I, I'm not a technical expert. I, I'm sure there must be some kind of at least experimental technology where you just put some sensitive uh, microphone deep in the bedrock all over Gaza, Gaza or detectors where Israel could be like, oh, our seismic detector in near Rafa is pinging. There's probably major tunnel construction going on in that sector. I mean, that seems like not that difficult to do. You just put like, you know, a hundred of these deep in the bedrock somehow all over Gaza. I know it's they probably wouldn't admit if they did, but did they do anything like that? Well, so the tunnels are not, we're not news to Israeli intelligence, um, not news to the IDF. Um, the IDF was aware of the tunnels when Hamas started to construct them um, about 15 years ago. And um, in the last two operations in, in Gaza, um, Israel did its best to destroy several tunnels, and, and they did. What they told the government at the time is that if we want to take a more serious stab at destroying tunnels, then we need to enter deeper into Gaza. That's not something the government wanted to pursue. Uh, there was no appetite in Israel for a full operation like the one we have now in order to try to take out Hamas for various reasons. Um, and you mentioned having the ability on the ground to verify where there are tunnels in Rafah. Israel removed its forces from there in 2005. So all it could do is use intelligence, perhaps so some of the things that you mentioned, uh, certainly human intelligence, you know, spies telling them about it, to try to figure out what was going on there. But you can see that even now, with the military all throughout Gaza, um, and focusing on it 24-7, it's still so very difficult to take out these uh, these tunnels. So there was no way you were going to be able to do it from the outside. Um, Israel thought that it had a pretty good grasp on what kind of tunnels there were and how big they were. It was wrong. But it certainly knew that there was a formidable system of tunnels in, in the making. It just didn't have the means to take them out. It's still very difficult to take them out. No, I, I know, of course, Israel knew there were tunnels. But, I mean, this seems like an obvious thing. Like, okay, they did this thing in 2014. Why didn't they try to install detectors in the bedrock across Gaza? Because if, if you did, let's say you had 10 of detectors in the bedrock, you would know, oh, my God. So for half of 2016, there's been extensive drilling in the uh, Rafa area. You know, they would at least know, like, wow, there's probably a lot right there. Do I you think, think that on, I think that on the level that you're talking about, Israel did know. They knew there's a lot of activity going on here. There's a lot of activity going on there. Um, they knew that. The exact specifics, not as well as they'd like. Do you think they knew it through sort of this technical thing or just informants? My guess is a combination. But I don't, I don't know the exact technological um, means that they use. Uh, what you're describing sounds possible and may have been part of it. They better do it this time, you know. Yes. 
Well, now Israel's on the ground, so it can use a lot more means to detect this than it could before. I noticed, you don't see it now, but maybe a month or two ago, I would go on YouTube and I'd start seeing these thumbnails and it'd be videos like featuring like uh, Scott Ritter and and actually Mearsheimer. And it would be like, Israel's can't win this. Israel's going to, is losing to Hamas. And there would be like Scott Ritter, like, uh, the Israelis are soft. They 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 rely on technology. They can't handle these hardened Hamas fighters on the ground. Uh, not hearing that as much today. Um, is Hamas on the ropes? Yes, Hamas is on the ropes. Um, Hamas is desperately clinging to the hope that Israel is not going to take over. Um, every single inch of Gaza, which so far it hasn't done. I'm encouraged to see that Israel's uh, planning uh, an incursion into Rafah and um, is clinging to the fact that Israeli society is very vulnerable when it comes to the hostages. Um, and they think that they can force Israel to stop the war through the hostages. Uh, those are the two things that they're clinging to. If those two hopes are gone, then I think Hamas is going to uh, come to terms that they um, would amount to their surrender. I, yeah, Hamas is in, is in serious trouble. There's a misconception that in order to defeat Hamas, every single tunnel needs to be destroyed, every single terrorist needs to be destroyed. Absolutely not. What Israel needs to do is make sure that Hamas cannot govern Gaza at all. That means taking over every inch of Gaza, and that means replacing the Hamas government with another form of administration, whatever form of administration that would be, and defending it. If that's done, and distributing the aid so that they can't distribute it. If that's done for long enough, Hamas um, can't run anything. The aid, and, yeah, the aid close point. To that. The aid point is so obvious. I'm astonished that that hasn't been done. Distribute the aid yourself. One conclusion I've come to during this is I am now totally for well after this whole thing is over, I am totally against continued U.S. aid to Israel because it's like heroin. And uh, I was thinking about it the other day if the U.S. had cut off aid to Israel in 2012, shall would Israel be in a more uh, self-sufficient, stronger position today than they are now? No, I, I, I really disagree with this whole approach that a lot of people are trumpeting that Israel needs to sort of decouple itself from the United States. Not not decouple, but they should be making all their own munitions. There, there is a, there's an argument for as much independence as Israel can have as far as manufacturing is concerned, but there are limits to that. There are strong limits to that. There, uh, Israeli manufacturing capacity is um, small. And um, we're seeing right now that, for example, take the, the war in, in Ukraine, the arsenals of the entire Western world haven't really been enough to supply them. They're running out of ammunition there. Because wars can require so much ammunition, um, and Israel doesn't have the factories and the and the manpower to provide it. That's just on the ammunition side. Even worse is the highest technology, namely fighter jets. 
Israel tried to create fighter jets in the 1980s because of that exact thinking. We don't want to be too dependent on the United States. And it proved to be cumbersome, expensive, well, and very difficult. I, I, fighter jets, that's that's one thing. I, I'm talking about the munitions thing because it's like, look, Iranian proxies on some days, I believe, during this in during the last three months, Iranian proxies have been firing on Israel from four directions, basically, or attacking it, you know, the Houthis, Yemen, South, Hezbollah to the north. You also have Iranian militias in Syria, and and there's some talk that they're even want to do stuff uh, so they can attack from Jordan. How can Israel even discuss opening up a northern th- th- front when they're still in this position where they have to sort of, well, not beg, but, you know, where America can just be like, you're done. I mean, it doesn't seem, uh, it seems dangerous to me, frankly. It's very dangerous, but that's just a reality of life when you're a small country. Um, you need allies in order to perform military operations on on a high level. There's a, just a, a matter of logistics here. How many people in Israel work producing munitions? If you moved a large number of people from other um, sectors of the economy into producing munitions, how would that affect the Israeli economy writ large? Would it even be enough considering the size of, of Israel? Because the amounts of ammunition that we're talking about here are massive. What we're running and seeing here again and again with Ukraine, with Israel, um, is that only the United States and its allies have the capacity to create enough ammunition to fight these wars. And uh, ammunition on its own is not enough. If the United States decides that they don't want to give Israel bunker busters, F-35s, all these sorts of things, its technological edge will be dulled. And of course, Israel also needs the United States in order to defeat um, resolutions in the United Nations oh, yeah. that would sanction it. These All these things go together. So the, the United States will always have, or at least Israel hopes it does, always has oh, yeah. some control over it and affinity to it because otherwise Israel is on its own. No, I, 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 I totally get that. I'm not saying like, uh, t- I'm not talking about decoupling. I'm just saying like, just on the sp- and I think they're already going to try to do this. They need to build a- at least some more self-sufficient uh, munition. Uh, you can improve it, but yeah. you can't solve. You right. My point is you can't solve this problem. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't even come close to solving it. No, this. no, I, 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 I agree with that. I want to play you a clip. I want to get your thoughts on. Their mission has to end. All these Palestinians starve, have no job don't have hospitals to be able to go to, don't don't have schools. Your mission needs to end. Look, I don't, I don't know how much more clear they can make it. They are saying genocide, hooray. Ethnic cleansing, hooray. That's what they're saying. And you still have people pretending like that's not the case and pretending like this is just a super serious and surgical hunt for Hamas, which is why we cut off food, fuel, and water to over 2 million people, which is why we bombed all of North Gaza told people to go south, and then continued to bomb South Gaza as well. I don't know how to get it through to you guys. This isn't a hunt for Hamas. Don't trust a fucking word coming out of Israel from their leaders. They're accusing the one organization doing the most work on the... Uh, 
So, uh, yeah, all this talk of Israel wanting to find Sinwar, the tunnels, it's its all a charade show. It's all, a, 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 I guess, a, you, you would say, oh, it's, I'm not saying it's a Jewish lie, it's Israeli lie, but uh, let me just get your thoughts on that. Oof, I don't even know wh where to start. Look, there's there's nothing factually correct in anything that's that's being said here. Um, and of course, Israel could be a lot clearer if they wanted to commit genocide. It could, for example, be targeting civilians. Um, and it could, for example, say that it's trying to destroy the Palestinians because there's always that kind of language that accompanies um, genocide. And of course, um, the aid organization that he's talking about, UNRWA, is heavily implicated in participation in terrorism, and that's why Israel wants to defund it, although right now Israel is talking about continuing to fund it for a while, just for the reasons that he talked about, that it's important in order to safeguard the day-to-day -day lives of the Palestinians. Um, Israel has supported UNRWA for years and funded it, um, because it has that mission, because Israel has always thought that it's in its interests that the Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank maintain certain quality of life where they're not desperate, because that leads to to terrorism. Um, yeah, there, there's, and, and of course, this whole operation is a reaction to October seventh, and it's something that Israel really tried to avoid for a very um, long time. No, but what do what do you make of like for instance, I I have a, a I'm friendly with a guy who has a good heart. Okay, he's not a not a bad guy, uh, but he he was angry with me like two months ago when we DM'd and he said Israel isn't interested in Hamas or the hostage. They're just trying to do a genocide. And he, he really believes that. That's sort of why I played the clip. Is that you you see this a lot. Where they they aren't interested in Hamas. This is just about ethnic cleansing, cleansing and genocide. What, how do you respond to that? I'm not sure there's much you can say. Honestly, I, I wish I had a, had a good answer. You know, th this has been a a, a very carefully prepared uh, thing where everything that Israel does is cast in the worst possible light. You know, with uh, apartheid and ethnic cleansing and genocide. These accusations were thrown around for. Um, the war in Gaza. So a lot of people were already inclined to think that Israel was doing this before. Or, or, or if you see, they'll say that not only uh, the genocide has been 75 years. That's often what they'll say. Been 75 yeah. years. Yeah. 100 days and 75 years. This is genocide on a population that's been subjected to 75 years of annihilation. Yeah, there's really nothing you 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 can say because it's a predisposition to believe that Israel is evil, and then um, anything Israel says is a lie. Any Western media outlet, even ones that are very critical of Israel, that relays verified information countering that is considered a tool of Zionist propaganda. And here's the thing: um, a lot of the people who believe that, most of them at this point, also hate the United States, um, also hate um, Western democracy also think that um, our institutions are, are evil. There, there's an entire indoctrination here against a way of life um, that 
has been spearheaded by a lot of um, states um, and elements that are against U.S. interests and certainly against Israeli interests. It's an entire worldview. It's an alternate reality. It's not that different from uh, the the sphere that MAGA people live in. The content is different, but it's created an alternate reality. And I... uh, if if we knew how to counter these kinds of alternate realities, we would solve the major problem facing our democracies in the 21st century. I, I'm I a, I'm a bleeding heart and I've, you know, been appalled whenever I was, I'd see like Israeli uh, West Bank settlers harassing like, you know, Palestinian, all farmers. It disgusts me. And I've been screaming like, you need to arrest these people for years. And, and it's my dream, a two state solution. These two people living in peace side by side, no longer with these wars, just sort of going their own ways. That's there's few things I want more in my lifetime than that. So that's where I'm coming from. But I'll tell you, Xiao, I sort of had the yeah this realization about what you just said, where um, they they are saying Israel is the new Nazi Germany, Zionists are the new Nazis, um, and they'll say it's so sad. The Jews became what victimized them. The Holocaust survivors from the displaced persons camp who went to Israel, who uh, fought in the 1948 war for independence, and many whom died in that, uh, they became Nazis. And how sad. And I realized that what was going on is is there's like this, I, I don't know how deliberate it is, but it's like a three, and then I start seeing people posting stuff like execute all Zionists or no Zionists on campus. Uh, or they'll put um, in Australia, Jerry Seinfeld has a poster for a comedy show and somebody wrote Zionist dog over his face because he went to, he visited Israel. Uh and I realized, okay, most Jews, I don't know what it is, 99, some people say 97%, but let's just say it's 90% of Jews. I guess under these people, you could classify them as Zionists because they're not anti-Zionists. So they turn 90% of Jews into, they're not Jews, they're Zionists, okay? That's the first step. Once you embrace that, and, and the Zionists are bad, and then they say, well, the Zionists are actually, they're, they're not just bad. They're the new Nazis, okay, which means they need to be destroyed yeah, and maybe executed. And so it's like a three-step process. And at the end, these people are like, oh, yeah, October 7th when uh, uh, Gazans and Hamas shot little Israeli children in their bunk beds to death at point-blank range. Um, that wasn't a violent anti-Semitic pogrom, the worst since the Holocaust. No, that was, uh, they'll say it's, it's amazing. They'll say that was, uh, uh, that was, um, uh, ghetto Jews, uh, during the world war II doing an uprising against Nazis. That little kid in the bunk bed, that Israeli kid in the bunk bed is a, is a, is a Nazi, not a civilian. Uh, and it, it, it's, it was like a shock. I think that's, it, it's shocking to me.
hatred against Jews, the desire to eradicate Jews has been part of history for a very, very long time. One of the effects of the Holocaust and the generation after the Holocaust is that for a long time, that kind of openly um, violent anti-Semitism became unacceptable, in at least in the Western world. And what we're seeing now is anti-Semites have developed a mechanism, which you illustrated very well, to change that to make the violent hatred towards Jews, to make the desire to eradicate Jews as a people acceptable. They have a very powerful vehicle for that that they've been building for many years. And we're in serious danger of that becoming mainstream uh, because anti-Semitism is something so deep in Western society. So this unlocks a desire that many people in the West have on the left and on the right um, to look at Jews that way. And this gives them a way to talk about slaughtering Jews, which perhaps they've always desired to do, with a moral platform that allows them to feel self-righteous and superior while they're doing it. Um, and that's very powerful and alluring. So what we're seeing is incredibly dangerous and it's spreading. Uh, but... Uh... Let's let's play this argument out because let me let me give you the the response. Uh, this isn't about anti. This isn't an, about anti-Semitism. We don't hate Jews. We just want Palestinians to have rights, equal rights. We're tired of uh, them being uh, per, uh, oppressed for so long. We just want. Shouldn't everybody have a you know? Rights of self determination. Actually, I have a clip here because I think uh, this is expresses it well. This is from the Left Reckoning podcast. The guy in the blue shirt's name is Matt Leck. He's like a producer, sort of co host for Majority Report. This is his own show that he does with this guy, David Griscom. By the way, they're both not Jewish, not Arab, have no connection to the region. Um, right. And here's, uh, this is a good clip that I think many people would say to you. Um, um, but Pacman, I think it's very comfortable. Oh, and they're, so they're attacking this YouTuber, uh, left-wing YouTuber, David Pacman, basically because he, he, he's not an anti-Zionist. Uh, right. And so, but listen to this, because it's sort of what people would say as a response to you with Israel's bombing campaign. Now he's going to say, oh, you know, I want them to hit the targets. There is no way that you drop the amount of munitions that have been dropped on Gaza and you can sit here with a straight face and say, we are targeting. We are targeting military uh, mil mil military targets. Bullshit. Lie to sit there and say that. So you accept it. Now, in all of this fucking window dressing, well, I don't like the right wing in Israel. I would like it if the left came back to power in Israel. The left doesn't exist in Israel because Israel is a settler colonial state that is that is obsessively pursuing a goal of eradicating Palestinians, eradicating Palestinians um, and, 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 and denying them human rights within Israel um, and then denying them the very right to life in Gaza and in the West Bank. That is what the reality of the Israeli government is because it can never um, do what needs to be done, which is to 
pursue a one-state solution with equal rights for people regardless of their ethnicity or religion. Wow, what a fucking liberal concept, by the way. Uh, a democracy where people have equal rights and equal vote? That should be the kind of shit that liberals like fucking Pac-Man are able to uphold. But no, we're going to make an exception for this ethno-state, and we're going to cry and whine about the consequences of our support for that? Give me a fucking break. You either take the position that Israel has the right to exist as a Jewish exclusive state as an ethno state for a certain group of people right you say I believe in that that means that you have to support because if you say you're for one group of people having political representation having access to land having all those kind of things you need to exclude the others this is the natural the sorry this is the natural end to that fucking project and it has been that way our entire life oh, or yeah, our parents but. Yeah, that's true yeah <laughs> Um, or you take the position um, that we should be pursuing a humane solution to this, which is a one-state solution with equal rights for human beings. And to sit here and, 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 and whine about the right wing, the right wing comes out of these kind of policies, just like in this country. Okay. So how do you respond? Well, the response that he's giving glosses over the internationally um, recognized and acknowledged solution to this conflict, which is a two-state solution. Um, there's an e elegant attempt to remove the two-state solution as a possibility um, at all there. It's either you have an ethno-colonial, oppressive, apartheid state, or you don't have a Jewish state at all. There's no in-between. There's no um, Jewish democratic state next to a free Palestinian state that provides uh, self-determination. And there's a complete um, ignorance there to the fact that ethnic groups that fight each other for a very long time are better off separate from each other, especially in the Middle East. I mean, what happens to minorities uh, that are hated in Middle Eastern countries, they get slaughtered, right? If we look at the poor Yazidis in uh, Iraq, or we look at the poor Kurds, or we look at the Copts in Egypt, all the Christians that have, have left over the years, the Assyrians that have been uh, massacred, the Maronites in Lebanon who had to undergo a civil war where they basically lost control of um, of the country. It ignores the context in which all this exists, which is the Middle East, where the Arab Islamic countries have gone to extreme lengths to annihilate or at least neuter any community that's not Arab and um, Islamic. And it ignores all those things in order to make the point that the existence of a Jewish state is in and of itself immoral. So the argument that this person is making is inherently anti-Semitic and has to jump through hoops in order to make that anti-Semitic argument. Well, I, you know, I would, I've never heard those two guys saying anything like, um, I, I don't, I don't think they're like, anti-Jewish to any like Jewish American or anything like that. Um, but I, I, I see your point. 
a uh, you wouldn't believe this a PhD at, who is at UCLA now told me on the phone two months ago Hamas is not anti-Semitic and all they are seeking is to create a one state of equal rights. Yeah. So we need to separate two things here. One is the when you have an idea that is anti-Semitic that is being spread, and the other is, is a person right. um, anti-Semitic. Right. Um, those are two different things. There are a lot of people who are spreading these ideas who are unbelievably anti-Semitic. And there are a lot of people who are receiving these ideas who are unbelievably anti-Semitic. There are others who simply don't know any better. I don't know about UCLA PhDs should definitely know know better. Um, Hamas has um, stated that its goal is a um, exclusive Islamic state and talked about um, slaughtering Jews, not Zionists, on many occasions. Um but yeah, but there is an, a strong element of ignorance here. Just like in the in the MAGA sphere, there's a lot of people in the MAGA sphere who are not particularly racist. They just um, have been exposed to these ideas too much and have accepted these ideas too much. And those ideas are spread by white supremacists very often. It's it's the exact same thing. If you only if your ideas were only uh, palatable to a core true anti-Semites or true white supremacists, um, then they wouldn't be that dangerous. The trouble is you construct an entire alternate reality that looks feasible once you've been exposed to it too much. But, but that's what's happening here. But let, let's play this out. I'll play what that guy would say. What, what do you mean I'm anti-Semitic? I want well, the, the Palestinians in the West Bank, the settlers move in, they're eating up the land. They don't get to vote in Israeli elections, but they're dominated by uh, the outcomes of those elections. Uh, the Gazans live in this terrible conditions. We just want them to have the same rights as people in Tel Aviv. What's your response? My response to that is that that's absolutely correct. And the, res and the solution to that is a two-state solution. If Israel continues to... Um, treat the Palestinians in the way that it's treating Palestinians, um, the results are going to be terrible. But you don't solve that by creating another injustice where you take Jews who are hated in the Middle East and put them at the mercy of Islamic terrorists who want to kill them. That doesn't solve the problem. That creates arguably a worse problem. What you want to do is solve the problem, not get Jews killed. A one-state solution will create a state where there are two communities at loggerheads with each other that want to destroy each other and it will not resolve the conflict it will turn it into a horrific civil war similar to what happened in yugoslavia if not worse that's not a solution to anything what you're trying to do by creating a dysfunctional multi-ethnic civil war state is not solving anything it's causing horrific suffering on both sides Okay, but I'll continue with this devil's advocate. Let me give you the sort of Hassan Piker response to that, which is, what What are you talking about? Palestinians are, they just want a better life. They just want equal rights. They don't want to kill Jews. They just, if, if it was one state of equal rights, 
they that that's all they want. They don't want to. They don't want to kill. Why? Why is that so uh, threatening to you? Palestinians so. have never had a leader who wasn't a genocidal terrorist who wanted to destroy Jews in the country. Whether we go back all the way back to the to the Mufti who had an alliance with Nazi Germany. Um, well before there was a state and occupation settlements or anything like that, whether we continue with uh, Yasser Arafat or we continue to the current day Hamas, the leadership of the Palestinians, regardless of the situation, has always uh, wanted to destroy the Jewish people there. Uh, Yasser Arafat was relatively benign when he said that any Jews who were in Israel before, in Palestine, before 1918 could stay. That was the, according to the PLO charter. Um, Hamas calls specifically for an Islamic state. There are facts here. There are platforms that these parties have. You have, if you read them, the, the, it's completely clear what they want. There's no talk of an actual equal state. There's talk of one that is dominated by Palestinians and by Islam. But, uh, and I'll just continue to point devil's advocate because this is so pervasive. I, I think this is illuminating. But your own fellow Israeli, Avi Shalem, uh, at Oxford. Because of the history of my family and of the Jews uh, of Iraq, when Muslim Jewish coexistence was the everyday reality, was the normal thing, that experience enables me to think of a better future for our region uh, than the one that we um, uh, see today. Um, uh, and um, I believe that more and more people would come to see this way, to see one state with equal rights as the only viable uh, formula um, uh, and the only formula that would ensure security for Israel and safety for the Jews. Because Israel was created as a haven for the Jew Jews anywhere, but today Israel is the least safe place for Jews. Avi Shalem uh, at Oxford um, says um, Arab Muslims and uh, Jews got along great. It was totally great coexistence before and then the Zionists came and then they and they they they're actually the source of this. And and once you remove the the, the Zionist thing it's it's going to be great coexistence. Well, according to Islam, uh, you can coexist, um, quote unquote, with people of the book, that's Christians and Jews, as long as they're dimmies, as long as they're second class citizens. Before Zionism, um, the land of Israel was controlled by the Ottoman Empire, the sultan of which was considered himself to be the um, imam of the entire, um, the caliph, I should say, of the entire ummah of Islam. And he ruled in, in that name. So Jews 
had very few rights. And of course, under those circumstances, there was less of a motive for Islamic violence against Jews, even though there were the occasional pogroms in Palestine as well in the 18th and 19th century. But once the British took over and created a state where Jews, or created a mandate where Jews had as many rights as Muslims, that's when things immediately started going haywire. And in the 1920s, the British tried to create shared institutions um, where Arabs and Jews were together in municipalities, in healthcare, in parliament, in workers' unions, and the Palestinians refused to be part of those institutions. They had no interest in cooperating with Jews. Uh, what they wanted was a state dominated by Islam. And that continues to this day. Nothing has changed. So, yes, as long as the um, Jews in these countries are completely second-class citizens, they're allowed to exist. But that's not something that Jews particularly want. They don't want to be at the whim of Muslims. And now, after uh, decades of conflict, it would be a lot worse than that. It, Jews wouldn't even be allowed to be dhimmis necessarily. They would be slaughtered. Because remember, Jews were thrown out of all of their countries in um, 1948 because of the conflict. So there's really no scope here for a shared, democratic, multinational state. That's a canard. Well, one person you can't say is not knowledgeable, and he definitely knows the subject, and is a smart guy, is Peter Beinart. And I guess he would respond, no, I just want equal rights. What, well, what Peter do think... Beinart doesn't run Hamas. It, you know, it, it doesn't matter what Peter Beinart wants, and it doesn't matter what uh, YouTube you know, bloggers want. Um, the people who have guns who Israel is fighting are Hamas, the Mufti, Yasser Arafat. Um, the, they're not the people that exist in the imaginations of the American left wing. These are horrible, violent people. And the only way that they can be stopped is through the use of force. I It's funny. I made that same argument. I said, well, because people will do this thing all the time, whereas I want one state of equal rights. And they basically, a lot of these people basically are they're the types that will call October 7th uh, resistance and stuff. And it's sort of like, well, okay, that's your vision, but that's not Hamas's vision. I'll, I'll sort of point that out. And then it usually ends up, I'll just get replies like, doesn't matter. Uh, it's their land. The, the occupiers get what they get. <laughs> ah, there you go. And that's when the facade, the very thin facade of caring what happens to Jews disappears and happens immediately. I've seen this so many times, exactly what you described. You're very good at um, diagnosing and analyzing these sort of online discourses, but you're that's a really you're really good at that. Uh, thank and you're you. absolutely correct. Yeah, they'll immediately say, you know, who cares about the occupiers? Who cares about the settler colonialists? Where will they go? They'll go to hell, right? When when they say where will they go, um, there's that's what people say. There's a thin veneer saying we care about Jews and what their rights will be in order to convince. But it's very, very thin. There, and the reason for that is most of these people are concerned about the Palestinians only when and because 
they are in direct opposition with the Jewish state, right? We know that Palestinians, when they have plights in other countries, absolutely no one cares. Whether right. it's in Syria, in Lebanon, no one cares. Muslims are, get slaughtered in other places, no one cares. In fact, a lot of these same people support Muslims being genocided in China because China is on their side nominally. There's, there's really very little concern here for the lives of Palestinians. The only people who care about Palestinians really are Palestinians. No one else cares. The rest of it is an absolute lie, in my opinion. Oh, no, no, no. You remember all those protests when um, the U.S. was bombing the ISIS and they killed tens of thousands of civilians. You remember when all the people shut down all the bridges, right? Remember that? Of course. Of course I do. Huge protests. And they care more about that. There were more people in America who cared about that than, say, when China does it, you know, or when there's um, uh, genocide in Darfur or when there's when there's genocide in, in Ethiopia. Uh, more people care cared about that. There's very little caring in this world. There's very little there's very little empathy to other people who are suffering. There's a lot more hatred. Yeah. And but and I, I, I feel like I have to say. It's not a good place to be in the world, Gaza. There is real suffering there right now. To, and to children, which just happens because the, the, the Hamas has built these tunnels. And and I, I don't want to, for a minute, suggest there isn't tremendous suffering going on in Gaza. I want to make that clear. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I'll tell you, Shio, um I really want to have on these anti-Zionists. I would love to have on Peter Beinart. I'd love to have on uh, Kyle Kalinske and uh, Matt Leck, those those guys I played. Because I never hear the most basic questions asked to these people because it, it astonishes me that the anti-Zionists, even the anti-Zionist Jews, and now there are a lot, and I, I'll tell you, some of the people I admire most, like Ben Lorber, I don't know if you know him, but he's a great journalist who covers far-right America. He's an anti-Zionist Jew. Super admire him. I don't I don't want to say, I don't want to cast aspersions just on this entire uh, group. But I am astonished with the anti-Zionists. They just, I don't even hear acknowledgement about, hey, we understand why Israel was created because uh, Jews were uh, driven out of lands. You know, I, I, I don't even I don't even hear that breadcrumb, you know, and I never, ever hear even the anti-Zionist Jews. And I want to have them on my show so we can discuss it, which is a world without Israel. Let's talk about that, because it seems like Okay, get rid of Israel. The Jews are just back to 1939. They're just a help, you know, helpless um, minority that just begs other people to help save them or their brethren. Just waiting for the next social media era, Hitler, to uh, go get them. No, no army, no way of self defense. I just, I never hear that discussion. Do you? No, they they don't care. They don't care what happens. Um, I, I think the um, main goal of many of the anti-Zionist Jews is to 
make anti-Semites think that they're one of the good ones and also to feel morally superior. I think those two things reinforce each other. Thinking about what Jewish life would actually look like without Israel again is uncomfortable for them. Uh, and they would be culpable in it if that happened. So there's a certain amount of uh, cognitive dissonance that goes into their positions. Um, as for anti-Zionists who are not Jewish, many of them either don't think about that at all or think about it gleefully. They That's what they want. They want Jews to, to feel that way. If you go into if to real pro-Palestinian circles in America and certainly in the Arab world, um, when you ask where will Jews go, they'll flippantly say Germany or Poland, if you're lucky. And of course, those are places they know Jews were slaughtered. That's why they pick them. That's very symbolic. Or they say, we don't care. I've seen a lot of pro-Palestinians say um, they can go to Gehenna, you know, go to hell. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's beautiful. definitely true. There are lots of anti-Semites that just use anti-Zionism as cover. But I mean, with when I look at like Peter Beinart or Owen Jones, I, maybe I'm just foolish, but I, I, I don't think Owen Jones say what you want about him. I, I, I don't think he's like a closet stormtrooper, you know. I mean, do you? I, mean, I, I don't know him enough to tell you, but like I said, there are well-meaning people who have bought this ideology hook, line, and sinker. And then here's here's the thing about our current social media universe. Once you take a stand, you are kind of forced to take it. You become part of a tribe. If you betray that tribe, right. you lose your followers. I'll give you an example. For, I, I'm on a much lower level of followers than, than Owen Jones, but I just had that experience yesterday. Uh, yesterday, I, I posted something about, about Joe Biden. Um, I said that I think Joe Biden is getting old and his cognitive uh, abilities are not what they used to be. And a lot of this criticism is correct. The pushback I got, because I'm considered like the pro-Biden um, Zionist guy, that's sort of my niche. Uh, the pushback I got was so severe that um, I ended up deleting it, honestly, because I didn't want to deal with it. I, st I still agree with what I said. But um when, when you're someone like Owen Jones, who has that kind of following, when you see information that you don't, that doesn't completely agree with the worldview that you've constructed, you can't really fully engage with it. You have to continue to, to lead your tribe. Uh, you're kind of stuck in a way in, in, in these realities and these ideological positions. So I don't know about him specifically, but I think for a lot of people, they're so invested in this that they hide the uncomfortable truth and zionists we do this too so many of us and i've been guilty of this too don't look at the suffering of people in in gaza as much as we should because it makes us very uncomfortable that's sort of the um you know chink in our armor in defending israel is what's going on in gaza and i think that uh, people who are anti-zionist experience a lot of that too there are clear problems with their position that they're aware of they see their comments their comments are full of nazis full of nazis agreeing with them full of people saying that you should gas all jews agreeing with them they know all that but they can't withdraw they can't um go against that because that's where their tribe is so there's a lot of things going on here it's much more 
uh, complex than good and evil. Ultimately, we're social creatures and we bow to social pressure. I th- that's a great point. And, and it's funny you said that because I want to be balanced. And like, I feel like we've been pointing out, you know, some of the bad people um, in the um, anti-Israel crowd. Um, and I felt like, you know what, let's do some balance. And like I told you, I consume, I pride myself on listening to all sides. I listen every day to the most pro-Israel media and the most anti-Israel. Well, not the most. Like That would be like the neo-Nazis. I don't, I'm not talking about them, but I listen to the Kyle Kalinske, Owen Jones, etc., Navarra media, you know, um, and I, I thought, you know, I got to point out when there's bad things on the Israeli side. And I was actually just watching this yesterday. I just discovered this Israeli politician who's got one of the most fascinating Wikipedias I've ever seen, uh, which is Moshe Faglin. Do you know him? Unfortunately, I do. Yes. And. <laughs> It's very interesting eyes if you look at him. Um, and Alarm I was, <laughs> and I was, I listened to an interview with him, and I couldn't believe uh, the graphic at the start of this uh, show. And it says, uh, "Enter, demolish, rule Gaza!" Exclamation point. Demolish, rule Gaza. I was like, "Whoa!" And I uh, watched this. We will start, you know, we're... This is from two, I think this is two months ago. Uh, let's, that will be the first question. Well, I can say it in three three words in Hebrew. Uh, I'm not sure I can translate it in three words. The first thing that needs to be done is to flat. Flatten. Okay. The, flatten the, the Gaza Strip. And and I, I should say... Um, uh, that the two women hosting this are smiling or grinning as as he says it. So so flat is the, is is number one. Annex, full Israeli sovereignty, is number two, and that will lead to 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 full victory. Nothing less than that. Annex, plus a, a total destruction of Gaza. Dresden, they call it Dresden. As the British did in Dresden, Carpet as the Americans did in, in Hiroshima, in Hiroshima, nothing left, nothing, not a soul, not not un, up ground and underground. Before the soldiers getting in, coming in, not as they doing now, sending the soldiers to 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 find the the, the Hamasnik behind the the skirt of his of his uh, grandmother. So flattening, carpet bombing, sovereignty equals victory. Yes, and the question bombing. that comes, um, I was sort of, you know, honestly, sort of astonished. But and and a lot of uh, the people I know who really don't like Israel post these clips, and and these are disturbing clips. Now, I I don't think they can be hand waved. One thing I would point out is if you watch these full interviews with Fakon. He hates the IDF leadership because they don't agree with the, his point of view. You know, he thinks they're like American puppets and weak and don't want to win. But this is part of the Israeli landscape. You know, that can't be denied. Yeah, if 
if you follow the um, Hebrew discourse on the war, this is this is very common. This is not just um, I wouldn't even call it just fringe. Well, first of all, Moshe Feiglin is um, a former member of Knesset. He was even um, deputy speaker of Knesset for for a little while. Uh, you know, Netanyahu makes deals with absolutely insane right wingers all the time, and this was one of them. Because at one point he was pretty formidable within Billy Kud. Um, most politicians don't talk like this, including, by the way, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, who are the more extreme members of the current government, but many of their voters do. And if you listen to Israeli radio, very often they'll bring on regular people and they'll talk just like this. And the host, who is invariably probably center left or something like that, will, you know, go, mm hmm, mm hmm, won't counter them on it, uh, won't comment on it because it's pretty common and no one wants to deal with it. Um, there's always been people like that regarding the Palestinians, and they've probably doubled or tripled um, since October 7th, which was a, which was a terribly traumatic um, event. This is part of the Israeli discourse. There's no point in pretending otherwise. I hear it all the time. Um, early on in the war, I even heard it from some of my left-wing friends. Um, now, I hear it less. Uh, people are coming to their senses. And um, the way the Israeli government has acted is not in line with this. Of course, Israel could have done that. There's a reason Moshe Feiglin, like you pointed out, and Caroline Glick and all these people are talking about how terrible the IDF is because the IDF is not acting this way. And if it did act this way, by the way, Israelis would be out in the streets. Many Israelis. Couldn't tell you the numbers. Many Israelis would be out in the streets. Um, remember, Israel, Israelis came out in the 1980s after the Sabra and Shatila massacre in the, in the Lebanon war because there is a sense in Israel that we're the good guys. We're not the ones who commit um, crimes and commit genocides and um, will stop Israel if it does. That is part of the Israeli identity. So those people are in the minority, but um, they're definitely part of the discourse and Israelis hear this all the time. I should just say, because I, I found it interesting, uh, I was reading about Figlin, and uh, it, it was interesting, because in all these interviews, he's, he keeps saying, we need to become more of a Jewish state, and he keeps saying that, and I looked at his Wikipedia, and he's like against the rabbis having the power to ban certain food, and he's this liber he has, he's sort of a libertarian. He's a he's, weird libertarian, yeah. Yeah, he, he wants to offer the palestinians like large sums of money to emigrate to other countries you know it, when people talked about the goal being ethnic cleansing i started thinking about it and i thought if they really if that was really the goal the israelis are smart enough that what they would have done is they would have taken rafa right at the start and then rather than doing anything officially they would just send undercover operatives to just help illegal immigration, you know, blow up a, a hole in the wall to Egypt and, and say, hey, there's a hole here. And, you know, or it, there would be like mysterious boats uh, with just enough gas to get <laughs> into Egypt, but not enough to go to Tel Aviv that would end up on the, the, the beaches of uh, southern Gaza. Uh, yeah, there's but... nothing like that. And also, um, if there was any plot, 
for anything, it would be immediately revealed because unfortunately, the current Israeli cabinet is the problem they have with leaks is unbelievable. I hear every single word in a cabinet meeting within five minutes of it ending, really. You know, I have some sources, and then I also follow the Israeli news. I can usually put together an entire transcript of the entire meeting. Um, it's horrible. We know everything that they that they do. And there are people who say things like, we should be encouraging Palestinians to leave. But Israel, you know, can't do that or doesn't want to do that. Depends who. Uh, because of American pressure, international, and if it tried to do anything like that, it would immediately leak. In, in fact, there was a paper where um, a low-level official recommended encouraging Gazans to leave, um, which was a mistake to write that paper, and it was immediately in the media all around the world and used by a lot of these anti-Zionist types that that you mentioned. You couldn't really have a discussion about this or a policy of this without it being immediately leaked. So that's that's not happening. And those things that you mentioned would not be happening. Has Iran been the most brilliant country as far as like if you see geopolitics as like a poker game? As far as like the cards they've been dealt. They've pretty much the U.S. isn't. I mean, like I was thinking about it, it's election year. I was thinking about it, if Iran or the one of their proxies like sunk a U.S. Navy ship. I, 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 I don't think Biden would start a war. I mean, he would strike, you know, do some strikes, but they pretty, I mean, they, I just, I look at their strategy over the last decades and I just see utter brilliance. They've created a proxy network where they get to literally fire their, Iran has a hot war with Israel, fire attacking it from four different directions. And they get plausible deniability. Uh, they're sort of untouchable. I mean, wh what do you think of that? There's a lot of truth to what you're saying in the sense that they, uh, especially in the Suleimani years, managed to infiltrate a lot of countries, weaken them, bring in their proxies, um, and do so at the expense of all their rivals, whether it's Israel or Saudi Arabia or the United States. Um, there's been a lot of success with that tactic. Uh, but part of that is because they're really willing to invest all of their money and prestige into this project of undermining other countries all around uh, the Middle East. And the question you have to ask yourself, I don't really have an answer to this, is what are they doing this for? And is that going to advance their survival and prosperity as a state? I mean, right now they're in a, in a condition where it appears that most of their population despises them and wants to overthrow them. So it would be, it's a little bit like how the Soviet Union in the 1980s realized, wait, we don't have any money. We're undermining all these countries in the Horn of Africa successfully, but what is that doing for us? Our society is disintegrating. Uh, if you if the United States wanted or to invest or Saudi Arabia wanted to invest all of its money in undermining other countries, it could do that with some success, probably. But then there would be implications domestically. And the implications domestically for Iran are pretty severe. There are, there are implications that we would not be willing to bear in other countries that could lead to the collapse of the regime. So I think it really remains to be seen 
if it's all that brilliant, it's a, it's tactical success. But what's the strategy leading to? Yeah, they're making Israel pretty miserable, but does that really serve its agenda? Does that really serve to strengthen Iran? It's it's an open question. I I've come to the conclusion that at least the the, the Israel part of uh, their chance they that they believed what they were saying. I don't think. They say death to America, death to Israel. I don't think they have any plans to nuke America. But I, I mean, isn't the goal cl- clear? The axis of resistance, resist the quote unquote Zionist uh, entity, wipe it out. Um, and they seem to be uh, making extraordinary. Uh, they've they've entered a new phase. Isn't that what they want? I guess in in theory. Um... But they haven't eradicated Israel yet. I don't think they will. And uh, their regime might fall. So, yeah, if, if they manage, I think that if one nut is going to crack there, the nut that would crack first would be the Islamic Republic nut and not the state of Israel nut. But, uh, yeah, that's that's why I'm not giving you a clear answer here, because um, it, it's not clear that the strategy is going to work. The proof of the pudding is is in the eating, causing a lot of trouble and misery isn't really a policy victory uh, in and of itself. It seems to me that this strategy has weakened the Iranian regime rather than than strengthened it. And is the ideological goal of the entire Iranian regime really just to destroy Israel? I think not. I think that there's a lot more than that. They're also trying to spread um, a certain kind of Sunni Islam. You mean uh, Shiite? Sorry, Shiite Islam throughout the region and um, that might end up really backfiring if the a very strong axis emerges against them, which is what the United States is trying to do now. Um, so the, the jury is out on, on all this. But you're right that tactically speaking, they've done some uh, incredible things. So has Russia. You know, Russia's managed to tactically undermine its enemies brilliantly. But just like Iran, it's not clear that's really going to work out well for Russia in the long term. I don't know what you're talking about. Wherever Iran goes, they bring peace and prosperity. Look at Yemen, Lebanon. Of course. Right? It's, Lebanon's just thriving now, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Syria broke Lebanon, and then um, Iran took over the pieces. Um, but I, I think this is an area of disagreement, and I and I just, I think me and my one of my previous guests, Gabe Stutman, journalist we disagreed on this i think israel is much more vulnerable i think than he and you think you look at hezbollah the kind of rockets they have i mean we have no idea that that hezbollah is not hamas okay i mean there was talk that they were trying to get and i don't know maybe they already did get maybe not the S uh, or whatever it's called, the S-100 thing from uh, Russia. They have guy all these guided hundreds, thousands of missiles they've been building up for years. I've heard they can wipe out potentially. We don't know how a, conf- a major conflict with Hezbollah would play out. I've heard there's a chance that they have rockets where and they have targets on the water treatment facilities, the sewage um, facilities in Israel, uh, that they could, and the electricity grid, and they could potentially, 
I mean, what is the probability? Let's say a major thing with Hezbollah starts in two weeks. That on the first day, okay, Israel does a lot of damage, but half of the electricity grid is down in Israel, uh, and the sewage treatment and the water treatment is mostly destroyed. And I mean, isn't that how possible is that? I think you're overstating um, Hezbollah's abilities. Uh, we can take a, a, a good look at uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now to see the limits of that kind of campaign. Right? Russia is trying to punish Ukraine, hurt Ukraine in every way possible, and keeps trying to destroy its infrastructure. Ukraine infrastructure has continued generally to work. Now, keep in mind that they're fighting the Russian army here. Um, in the Israeli case, they would be fighting a very, you know, well-stocked, well-trained terrorist group. It's just a terrorist group. Um, there's no comparison. And, of course, Israel is much more powerful and stronger than Ukraine was, at least at the beginning of the war. So you can take a lesson at that, at the fact that, yeah, they would be able to hurt Israel plenty, but they wouldn't be able to destroy Israel with a bunch of rockets. And rockets, of course, need areas to be launched from. And um, Israel can take over all of southern Lebanon very swiftly in, in a blitz attack. Um, it has three divisions right now on the border. Um, it could probably go in with five or six if it had to. And in in a war like that, what I would advise, and I think the general staff would advise, is you take over as much territory as possible quickly. Then you work to neutralize the forces within those territories. Um, what would happen very quickly is what happened in Gaza. The ability to launch missiles would be curtailed, and Israel would be fighting against tunnels. Now, don't get me wrong. It would be a nightmare. Israel would lose a lot of soldiers, but there's a reason Hezbollah is not escalating. And that's because they know that Israel has what we call in, in military strategy, escalation dominance. Escalation dominance is the idea of, okay, if we keep escalating, who ends up able to hurt the other side more? If we go up one step, the other step. Who ends up reaching a step where they can hurt you, but you can't hurt them? And the side that has escalation dominance here is Israel. Israel and Lebanon, of course, had this war, what was it, 2007? Right. No, 2000, 2006. Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2006. Yeah. A lot has changed, actually, in warfare with drone technology since then. How much of that do you think could be like an unexpected X, X factor? Like, do we really know uh, how, let's just take like drones. Could that be something that would really change the nature of how this would go? No, it, it wouldn't. I have plenty of thoughts on that. I, I've been watching the campaign in uh, in Ukraine very closely. And there you have the Iranian um, drones being operated there, um, thousands of them every night. And a lot of the countermeasures the Ukrainians are using are Israeli countermeasures. Uh, and they don't have our best countermeasures, and they're not always using them correctly. And what's happening in Ukraine is that the drones are causing a lot of problems, but they're not um, they're not a strategic um, threat. 
they they're an irritant. Right, right, right. Do you think, that's what would happen here too. Do you think here's my sense? I know Israel, they really have been talking about we gotta do something, we gotta do something with Hezbollah. Here's a take, and I wonder what you think. The clock's ticking. Biden and, and Blinken, they're frustrated already. Um, if they plan to open up a second front, um they don't they don't have all the time in the world to wait. This is an election year. Biden wants this clearly over and forgotten by his base pretty quickly. He doesn't want a major war with uh, Hezbollah and Israel like going into the summer. God, that would be pretty bad for him politically. Um, are they out of time to do this? Yes, I think they are. I think the reasons you mentioned are a major part of that. I also think that despite the fact that there are plenty of people in Israel who are talking about fighting Hezbollah, the truth is there's no appetite for it. The truth is um, Israelis don't want a, another war, which may end up being significantly worse than uh, than what happened in, in Gaza. Um, and I don't think that Netanyahu enjoys the political credit to do that. He's already running out of political credit now. There's an increasing amount of people in Israel who think that he's running this uh, operation mostly in order to survive politically. And I think if he turns it into another war uh, that may be avoidable, that will increase exponentially. And I think on a strategic level, that's very good because I have a nightmare scenario in my head what happens if Israel uh, invade Lebanon, that could be very bad. Um, I know I just talked about how Israel could defeat Hezbollah militarily, but what we're looking at is, is a situation where if Israel moves its focus from Gaza before destroying Hamas, or before removing Hamas from power, I should say, makes a deal with them, which is what that would require, where uh, thousands of terrorists, or at least hundreds of very serious terrorists are released, they could destabilize the West Bank, which is already not doing very well with all those prisoners released. Hamas could remain in Gaza and Israel could be entering an even bigger front in Lebanon. So all three things of those happening all at once would be a serious threat to um, Israeli survival in the long term. I think the best thing Israel can do is not bite off more than it can chew. It's having trouble chewing Gaza, uh, to, to overuse that analogy. It has to finish that war. It has to make sure that it achieves its goals there the problem with hezbollah will be resolved in the short term once that happens hezbollah has said that they'll stop once that once that war stops then israel needs to plan very carefully how it handles hezbollah in the future but now is not the time for that war and the reasons you mentioned are definitely part of it you know i had been coming to this sort of weird position uh, in the previous weeks where i thought because I had been hearing and I thought it was intriguing or somebody uh, expert said that Hamas wants to become Hezbollah, where this person was saying they would actually welcome the PA becoming the government. Wait, would, Hamas isn't really interested in governance of, of Gaza, and it could just become like this terrorist thing below it. And I was thinking, you know, what is the reward for toppling Hamas? Like oh, your reward is you get to run destroyed Gaza. Wow, what a great present. And I was thinking, you know, maybe 
the thing that Hamas fears the most is you cut a deal, get the hostages, you leave, and you just leave them to clean it up and explain themselves for seven. And I was saying, but not just forever, but like, let them handle the sewage system and cleaning it up for seven months, that nightmare job. And then when they fire a rocket, go in, or when Sinwar has a parade, then to totally destroy Sinwar and stuff. But I no longer believe that because somebody was pointing out about how, mu how much aid money is going to go in for the reconstruction that Hamas would get. And I don't think Israel can accept them getting that infusion. But still, my, my old thinking of <laughs> what, a sh what a crappy reward Israel would get if they destroy Hamas. What's your reward? You get to uh, govern Gaza. Well, ideally, Israel would not get to govern Gaza. And ideally, Hamas wouldn't remain there at all. I think once you do an operation like this, it's an opportunity for Israel to uh, build a regime in Gaza and the West Bank that would benefit Israelis and Palestinians. It's really time to stop kicking the ball down the road because every time it goes down the road, the road gets worse. You know, we had in, first intifada, second intifada. This is worse than, than both of them put together. Um, next time could be worse than this. There's really no point in, in punting on this. Um, this is an opportunity to resolve the conflict once and for all, to bring in a government that can eventually lead to a Palestinian state that is not a threat to Israel and benefits um, its citizens. Anything else would be a, a crime um, at this point, because we know we're not solving this leads. Um, so after the war, now, I'm starting to think this. Uh, Netanyahu's a survivor. I'm not saying he's going to survive this, but it, he, you know, he, he's been underestimated. And um, whether you like him or loathe him, he is talented. And I don't think people uh, fully uh, acknowledge that. Now, I have a weird theory about Netanyahu, and I want to know what you think. His fluency in, in English, right? He began his career, he was at the Boston Consulting Group um, alongside Mitt Romney, interestingly, in the 80s. Then he basically became a spokesman for Israel and America, and then he began his career. His fluency in English, I think that's like his secret weapon as a politician, because like, for instance, it's most it's most stark if you ever see uh, someone like Danny Danan. You know him? Sure. Yeah, you see him on TV. You know, ethnic cleansing, that's a word you used. If you read my article, I spoke about voluntary immigration. I, I read that. And then you compare it to Netanyahu, and it's just like, you know, it's the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals type thing. And I even noticed a difference with Neftali Bennett, who is fluent, but still not as uh not as not as good a speaker is there any um challenger in the arena that speaks better english than netanyahu and do you think i'm correct on this um his english is what got him attention for sure as israel's premier spokesperson in the early 90s um 
I'm not sure that's been very important for his survival in Israel. A little bit. It it kind of buttresses the sense that he's um, you know, diplomat, uh, mover and shaker on the world scene that people like. But the truth is, with his English, um, what people forget is that he was a failed politician at first in many ways. You know, he was in charge from 96 to 99. He was, uh, I think he wasn't that bad a prime minister, honestly, but he was generally perceived as a, as a disaster, beaten by Ehud Barak. Then when he came back to the Likud, he was completely outmaneuvered by Ariel Sharon, who took over the party and um, completely ostracized him. And he ended up leaving and forming Kadima. The Likud under Netanyahu got very few votes. Um, but when Sharon and Barack and other people who defeated him in politics taught him how to play the game, which he didn't know at first. And so he added that to his abilities. Uh, he's a he's a he's a fast learner, or at least he learns when he came back in 2009. He had this uh, survival instinct that he was lacking before that's allowed him to do all the things that he's done. Um, I think English is just one element of it. He he had, just has, like you said, a tremendous amount of talents. The fact that he managed to um, basically rescue Israel's economy in the early 2000s when it was on the verge of collapse as finance minister was another thing that convinced people. Yeah. People, people don't talk about that enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's tremendously talented. There's no one even close to his abilities. I think everyone knows that. That's one of the reasons he's been prime minister so much. It's what people abroad miss when they compare him to Trump, when he's, you know, miles above him in capabilities. But he's also become a very dangerous individual um, who's very self-centered and only looks at his own interests far more than the national interest. And all politicians do that, but he's doing it in an unacceptable level. Um, the, but I don't think there's any chance Israel would select someone like Danny. I, I know English might not be the most important thing, but I don't see them picking anybody like Danny Danan to be PM, who just is not good in English, right? Um, well, a lot of the most beloved Israeli prime ministers weren't great in English, like, you know, Yitzhak Rabin um, or uh, Shimon Peres or, or, or um, Yitzhak Shamir, who wasn't that beloved, but was prime minister. Um, that's important, but maybe not as important as you're saying. The fellows who, um, someone like Benny Gantz. Does he speak is, English? He does. He speaks he does. English. Yeah, he speaks yeah. English well enough. Um, he speaks it with with an endearing kind of old school Israeli accent, which Israelis like. I don't think that is a, a real problem um, for him. You're right that if you know no English, that's... Back. Not no I'm, English, but if you're like Danny Danan, you're like, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if your English is, yeah, Danny, let, let me make clear Danny Danon is not going to be prime minister. Did they pick <laughs> him to be a U? I, I'm surprised they picked him to be a UN ambassador. Netanyahu picked him, and yeah. that is a that is a typical Netanyahu thing. Of he Danon was an irritant in the Likud party. He was not towing the party line on, on certain things, so he threw him out. It, it, that's what he does. And it doesn't matter if they're good at that job or not good at, at that job. I heard a stat, and I really can't even believe this. I don't know what the exact uh, phrase is, but Israel's per capita GDP, I think it might be. Somebody was saying it's uh, a equal to Japan's, but it's approaching and might 
surpass Germany? Is that true? I don't know. Per capita, Germany does, doesn't sound right. Per capita GDP, Israel. I'm I'm looking. It's very high. Uh compared to Germany. I keep hearing that they're gonna be as wealthy or wealthier in some stat than Germany soon. You know, one of the differences between Germany and Japan and Israel is that Israel is growing a, a lot faster. Um, but I see right now the per capita GDP of Israel is fifty-four million oh sixty. Germany is fifty-six million. 040. So it's very close. So, you know, it's hard to That's tell. That's astonishing. It's That's hard to tell. Who, yeah, it's, it's the same level, basically. As for Japan, Japan's been in doldrums for a long time. I think cool. Israel um, is has a healthier economy so it, than Japan does. And, and just for the audience, just so they can appreciate this, Israel was, you know, like I, I've seen some of the fundraising material for the, the Jewish uh agency or whatever in the 60s and the 50s it was like help your poor J jewish cousin you know and and their economy was like hey jaffa uh, oranges <laughs> it is remarkable that their economy has developed this fast i'm fascinated with this what is the secret sauce? Is it just you put a bunch of smart people in a tiny country surrounded by enemies that's always being attacked and they're forced to, you know, get serious, get creative? Edward Lutwak, he was pointing out, he wrote a book about uh, Israeli in a, uh, military innovation. He was pointing out differences between the Pentagon uh, contracts and the Israel and how they did Iron Dome and these other things. And it was just like, you got to get it done now. There, there is no waiting, you know, like there is no just cut the corner, you know. Then four years ago, I was in Israel on holiday with my wife and I got, they invited me to do, to go and visit the Hezbollah village built on the side of Mount Carmel, which is a full reproduction containing with all the rockets, everything. Right? And I said, how, how do you get into the tunnels here? And the guy says, oh, well, Sayerita goes, you know, specialized unit. You put ropes under the arms. We're going to lower him into the thing. He has an Uzi, he'll shoot. And I said, forget it. I said, the way to do it is to drill holes there. We're using RPGs. The, the Russian makes wonderful RPGs. They're very cheap. And all we take is an M113, which is this boxy, useless troop carrier. The Israelis have thousands of them, and they're selling them online, by the way. Or were. How much? I, I don't know. But they, they, they were getting rid of them. I said, we take this, we put the Marlboro box, a Marlboro cigarette-type magazine in the back, and a little arm to pull them out, dangle them to get things, and we start drilling holes. We don't know where the tunnels are, but the, the fact is the villages are quite compact. They're between the houses. These things are very cheap. Let's do it, and so on. Again, I was, I was there on a, on a family thing, I, I say this thing on Mount Carmel. I tell these thoughts of mine to the brief, to the escorting officer who was a, a general purpose lieutenant colonel, infantry reserve. And next morning, people showed up at the hotel. They said, and by that night, I met the head of R&D command. In other words, open door, open door, okay? People have ideas, listen to them. 
Open door is very important. And, then, and in this country, open door would do much more. There is no open door. And a final thing about R&D. It's very good that there's economic constraint, that you don't have all the money in the world. And you are a Marine, right? Mm -hmm. So the Marines, Berger, the commander of the Marine Corps, desperately wanted to get many more landing things, landing, call them landing craft, okay? Many more landing craft, and because it's distributed strategy to be able to tackle this them, these stupid islands the Chinese have. So it goes to NAFC, Naval Sea Systems Command, because Marine Corps do not have any zero, the, the Navy doesn't let them develop anything at all. They have to do that. So they go to NAFC, and, and the Marines say, we want the smallest possible, simplest possible thing, and we want it next week. Okay, and it was called the light landing craft, and they was advertised, they were very proud, they got the price down to $100 million. <laughs> it's a box, it's a steel box with an engine supposed to move people, okay? I don't know why it cost $100 million, but they were proud instead of being ashamed. Oh, and well, do you have any thoughts on what is the source of, of this? Yeah, I, I think that Israel has um, cultural roots that are very beneficial um, to all this. Um, Jews have been dealing with hostile environments and improvising with um, rules and um, factors uh, stacked against them and overcoming them for many generations. And um, also Jews were not allowed to own land in a lot of places, so they focused on commerce, they focused on trade, they focused on education and, and learning. So that was the exact correct mindset for overcoming all these problems and thriving in an ideas-based economy. Um, Jews just land in the world of, of high-tech running because that's what they're used to. I, I work in high tech now and the training that I got in Israel culturally, educationally, militarily um, was all about overcoming obstacles at all costs in the most practical way um, possible. I, you know, I've, I used to live in Canada. I used to tell my Canadian students when I taught there that Canadians think inside the box Americans are taught to think outside the box. And when Israelis solve a problem, there is no box. There's just the problem. They're solving the problem. That's ingrained in our culture. It's ingrained in, in who we are. And in an economy where everyone's competing with each other, that served Israel incredibly well. Oh, okay. The UN, a bunch of countries come to you at, um, in 2030, and they say this. We got $20 billion dollars. We found a piece of uh, land on the Alaskan coast that's basically empty, but it has a port. It's going to be seven times the size of Israel. You can take your nukes, you can take your army, all your people, and it's it's yours. It's not uh, controlled by the U.S. Uh, and you just give the, all of the Holy Land to the Palestinians. Would you take the deal? No, no, I, I would not take that deal. Herzl tried the same thing with uh, Uganda uh, in, early in the in the twentieth uh, century, and um, what most Jews told him is that 
there's only one homeland for the Jews. There's only one place that we identify with. There's only one place that's our homeland. And there's no price you can put um, for monetarily or in terms of land on that belonging, on the stories of the Bible, on where Jews pray uh, towards. And, and of course, Palestinians feel the same way. If you offered Palestinians... Um, that amount of money to relocate them to Alaska, they wouldn't take it either. Um, people feel the way they feel about their homes, and money's no replacement for them. Are you sure, or is there any doubt? Um, I mean, I know that 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 would never work. No, 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 no. Let's just say it would work. Let's just assume that. No, no. And I love right. Israel too much. Uh. Uh, I think it's, uh, I would take it. <laughs> no offense to Israelis, but I think no more fighting, you know, no more Iran trying to kill I you. I think what Jews have discovered is that wherever they go, trouble follows. You oh, might as well no. take a stand in the place that matters to you. You know what would happen? They moved to Alaska and it would be like the news six months in. In a tragic mistake, a Palestinian community was already occupying part of the region. Well, and they're fighting the Inuit. I, I, you know, the, well, and they're fighting the Inuit backed by Russia within a few months. That, that's my prediction. So, uh, after the war, people say uh, Netanyahu's done. Okay. Um, first of all, is is he done? No, I never write that guy off. I've written That's him true. off before, always live to regret it. Um, he has a play. He has a play. He's, he's already doing it. And uh, what he's going, what he's saying, not going to say, saying is this is all the IDF's fault and Biden's fault. And he's going to, to show how the IDF led October 7th and Biden stopped him from winning. A lot of people will buy that. And uh, he, then he's, go he's going to avoid elections. The people in his coalition don't want to go home. They don't want uh, elections because many of them won't have a job afterwards. He has um he has a a, a deck of a hand to, to play with, and he'll play it as best as he can. It's not a great hand, but he's going to make it as good as he can. And his rivals are just not on his level, so they're going to be outplayed. Um, my guess is he won't be ever elected again to prime minister. But he'll stay in there for as long as he can. That could be uh, how, a long time. That could be years. Americans should know. It's really fascinating. Uh, the Israeli right has adopted all this MAGA language on deep state. Oh, yeah. And they're like, I what I I don't speak Hebrew, unfortunately, but what I detect is that basically Netanyahu's supporters, the narrative is, you know, who failed on October 7th, these weak globalist American puppet uh, post Zionist a deracinated traitor, uh, deep state uh, IDF uh, generals and the guy who's running intelligence, they didn't let Netanyahu know they failed. They're, they they failed, not Netanyahu, right? I, I hear that a lot. And, but, and I also sort of worry that this push for the Palestinian state, that if I was Netanyahu, I'd be like, oh, thank God. Because now he's going to be like, if you don't keep me, you know, when I'm in power, there's not going to be some dangerous, as he would say, terrorist next to us. He'll be like, okay, you get rid of me, 
you're voting for a Hamas controlled uh, Air Force next to you. Uh, so that's what I see. Now, yep. who do you think are the most likely? Because here's what's interesting. Netanyahu's polling has been damaged. But October 7th, and this is one of the most insidious parts, it attacked the most left-wing peace-aspiring uh, Jews in Israel. It killed them, tortured, mutilated them. And now a lot of these people are... It's very sad that you see interviews and they're like, I don't know if I still believe that the peace is possible. Uh, so that's going to shape things. Um, but Netanyahu's probably done. So what do you, who are the most likely, is there anybody, everybody says gone. Some people are like, hey, maybe Neftali Bennett comes back. Um, who are the leading names and are, is there anybody who, uh, isn't on the radar who, who actually is a strong contender? Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's, there's some names that you, that you might not know. Well, uh, so we'll move on to side. Yair Lapid is, um, has already been prime minister, might be prime minister again. He's not going to be the next prime minister. Naftali Bennett, like you said, He's he's going to come back to politics. He's not going to be prime minister. He doesn't have enough of a constituency. Two people I can think of who um, might be in the future are um, Yossi Cohen, who is the head of the. Um, oh, uh, interesting. The, the guy with the weird business stuff in Africa. Interesting. OK. Yeah. 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 He's uh, he's. Has enough of a security background and was close enough to Netanyahu that he could pick up a lot of the right without being directly implicated in October 7th because he wasn't in his job at the time. So I could see him making a case. He's, he's definitely going into politics. I think Gadi Eisenkot behind Gantz, um, because he lost his son and his nephew in the war, and because he's being a lot more straightforward with the Israeli people about what's happening in the war than anyone else, uh, Israelis love both those things, the sacrifice and the straight talk. I think his star is, is very much rising on the on the left. Um, yeah, so those are the two people I would look at who who aren't currently being looked at uh, all that much. But is the Israeli left? I mean, it's already been greatly diminished. Um, but what what is the state of those people in Israel? The people that were, um, you know, a lot of the people killed on October 7th. I mean, one of the tragic, Vivian Silver, this wonderful woman who was killed, was a lifetime peace activist. And I forget the name of her group, Women Who, something where she was trying to unite Palestinian Israeli mothers and stuff. She would help drive people to hospitals from Gaza. Those people, what is the, the, they're still there in Israel, and I'm so glad there are still people like that, but what is the state of those people in Israel now? Well, I don't think this has had as dramatic an effect on the left in Israel as you think. One of the main reasons is because the Israeli left was already barely in existence. I mean, you have to keep in mind that the last elections were the first time um, in in decades that merits the flagship party for people who you know are very peace oriented but still Zionist didn't make it into the Knesset, so they were already very weak. And in current polls, they do make it in. 
So they may have been slightly strengthened by this. Um, to me and to some other people in Israel, uh, this has uh, sharpened the need for a political solution. But having said that, the left, the the, the real left in the sense of um, really wanting to make concessions with the Palestinians right now, is small, was small before the the war and remains small. But the center left, um, which Benny Gantz represents, has gotten bigger. There's a sense among the average Israeli that Netanyahu's um, judicial reform and uh, the messianic tendencies of the government are bad for Israel. And the people who don't like those things are now the majority in the country. They're not particularly gung-ho on a Palestinian state or making concessions right now because very few people in Israel are. But they are much more pragmatic and would be willing to work towards a resolution under the right conditions in a way that Netanyahu wouldn't. So I don't see the um, state of things as completely bleak in terms of right versus left in Israel. Um, There's a lot of cause for concern, but I think things are actually better now than they were a year ago. I was semi joking, but if the I was say I tweeted last night, I said, if the CIA still had swag and guts, you know, you know, if the old Yale boys, the skull and bones boys were back from the dead, you know, they would be planning a classic CIA style coup for Qatar soon, you know, let let UAE or uh Saudi take over it or something. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, because I, I sort of feel like I know they have a huge influence operation with the American universities. They like fund everything tank in DC, but I would be nervous if I was Qatar because people didn't really, you know, the average, your average lawyer, okay, didn't know. If you had asked him, I'll put it this way, if you had asked him in September what country runs um, Al Jazeera and funds Hamas, maybe he would have said, uh, is that Kuwait or Bahrain? You know, he wouldn't be clear. Now that that same guy is like, oh, that's Qatar that funds it. So there's a new awareness. And unlike Iran, they're a minuscule country who just sit on an oil field. But uh, I again, I don't think the CIA has that kind of uh, that kind of swag anymore. But uh, what do you think about that? Okay, so first of all, Qatar is a lot bigger than than you're saying. There's there's almost three million people there. Um, but oh, um, I'm sorry, no problems. But um, yeah, um, I don't think the United States wants to overthrow Qatar. Qatar is very useful. The U.S. has has a base there. It it um, they have ties with all sorts of organizations and people like Hamas, the United States wants to talk to. I don't think that would be uh, that the answer. I think the answer to what's happening with Qatar in the United States is, is part of a much bigger problem. The United States has allowed itself to be infiltrated by enemies on every level of society. Um, and that kind of Cold War mentality of defending America from external infiltration, it's time to bring it back. Qatar is one of the problems, especially in academia. So it should be illegal to take money from Qatar, um, at least over a certain level or however you want to limit it. 
just like there should be more measures to limit uh, Chinese incursion, whether it's TikTok or various forms of espionage that they're involved in, the United States is aware of, isn't shutting down on, not to talk about Russia and its effect on American elections. This is a massive problem the United States has. The United States is allowing its enemies to set the agenda and infiltrate it on every level. The culture is too open to this kind of manipulation, and Qatar should be on that list. But I don't even know if Qatar's the the worst uh, problem. It probably isn't, but it has to has to be on there. We're going to close in a dark area, which is uh, anti-Semitism in the U.S. You know, I'm over the left, um, and before October 7th, and still, my main focus is on the Nazis, the far right, exposing these evil people like Nick Fuentes, the Groypers, which is a rising threat. Um, my thesis on that, just briefly, is we're going to see a, a increase continued explosion of anti-Semitism because what's happening, and I got to try to coin a phrase for this. Uh, maybe someone else has already pointed this out, but what I think is happening in the U.S. is this. As America grows more diverse, the American far right is finding, is sort of, it's still racist, but it's de-emphasizing that race element. And it's using anti-Semitism as its new glue, its solidifying factor. So there was uh, some like sort of Nazi Groyper accounts exposed recently. It was an Indian, a young Indian American. Uh, Nick Fuentes's uh, father is, I don't know if he's Latino, but he's brown. He's like half Latino or maybe Latino. And I've always explained uh, the Fuentes Groyper movement as you know he he he's racist, but he he wants it to be okay to have a few brown faces in the pogrom so his dad can come. And what what I'm pointing out is I, I I'm seeing that this new far right and this new diverse America, though they're going to have a few Arabs and um, Latinos and maybe even a few black. There are actually a few black Groypers, a few. Uh, and it's all fine as long as everybody, you know, in the club hates the Jews and likes Hitler. And it's, it's becoming the solidifying factor. So that's one thing. And I, I've talked about that before, and we both know those people are totally evil. Before, sure. After October 7th, I was wrong. I sort of dismissed this talk of campus and left-wing anti-Semitism. Because, and I still believe this, it is not, it's, it's not even in the same league as the type of Nazism you see on the right. Like, it's, it's bad, but it's different. It's, it, it's like a different species of anti-Semitism. But I think I overly dismissed it. Um, and there was one recent story that was just shocking. The I don't know if you saw this, Columbia uh, University Law School, Student Senate, they get to vote to approve new clubs. They approved nine new clubs. They only rejected one club. Do you know what it was? Let me guess. Let me do juice. It was a club dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism, rejected in an anonymous vote. And it uh, the vote was pretty overwhelming, too. 
rejected. No, nope. and they rejected it because they said uh, it had the IH, IHRA definition. definition. And they were worried about free speech and stuff. But uh, there is... Um, there, there is something going on on the left. Um, the vile uh, Abby Martin, I was just monitoring her, and she's openly saying that the Jews are fantasizing anti-Semitism, that they want to play white victim, victimization. She's, like, calling Holocaust museums uh, Zionist propaganda. There's so many levels of it. It's like the Holocaust industry... The fact that there's Holocaust museums in every city, when, where are the native genocide museums? Where is that acknowledgement? It's the hyperbolic, um, disproportionate nature of, of projection of anti-Semitism. I mean, when you look at, oh, anti-Semitism, all these anti-Semitic attacks have risen a thousand percent. It seems so crazy and it's parroted unquestioningly by corporate media. Right, right. It's the notion of white victimization. It's like this fantasy. Um, of wanting to be victimized. It's very strange because it's like, this is all just hypothetical. And you, th th there's an ugly, ugliness um, in the left. It's not, it's not, it's a faction, but um, it's, it's very sad. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think that we're um, making a mistake by differentiating too much between right right wing anti-Semitism and left wing anti-Semitism. Uh, there are elements that are um, against the social order in the United States. They're trying to overthrow it. And one of the major glues that they're finding for that is anti-Semitism. One of the best ways to rally people against the against the American system is by saying that it's Zionist and it's run by Jews for Jews, that it's Zionist occupied. And you can hear that on the left and you can hear it on the right. And you mentioned um, uh, Holocaust museums that is verging on and very often switching into Holocaust denial. There's a lot of Holocaust denial now on the left. The whole idea that it's, you know, white on white crime and it wasn't such a big deal and were that many people really killed and is what's happening in Gaza actually worse and all that sort of thing. Um, that's a form of Holocaust denial, which we see on on the right as well. And if you go to accounts on social media that are right-wing supremacist uh, and um, anti-Semitic and left-wing uh, anti-Semitic, they're often followed by the same people and have the exact same talking points. The, the, the gap between the two is, is shrinking. What uh, certain actors have done is they've taken advantage of uh, malignant hatred of Jews that's always been part of left-wing and right-wing spaces, and they've uh, united it under under the same talking points. So I think the similarities are chilling, and uh, I don't I don't. It doesn't really matter which one's more dangerous at one specific moment or less, um, because they're intertwined. Uh, yeah, I sort of. Did, I, I haven't seen have, who on the left has been like did, saying like did six million die? Like I haven't seen that. Who's doing that? Uh, you have a lot of these sorts of um, of accounts like um, defund Israel and um, oh, Khaleesi, whatever, and uh, yeah, yeah, they're they're doing all that. These are these are big accounts. Oh, Khaleesi. Left, like oh, she's vile. I 
Yeah. She she just uh what almost Islamist sort of person. I d I don't really see Syrian her on the girl. left. I Yeah, I she's so not a left. She's not on the left. well I mean is she isn't she? She supports Syria and Russia um and is anti Semitic. These are you know classic tanky positions that she has. Um but it just it kind of proves my point. There's the boundaries between them are are not uh, are not wide yeah yeah no, there's no. a lot of islamists out there and uh, pro hamas accounts on the left that deny the holocaust i, no, I they, have them in my mentions all the yeah, time yeah you're you're right there is this um horseshoe thing in um it's really such a disgrace uh, max blumenthal uh, and aaron mate are now buddying up with jackson hinkle who's uh friends with the nazi nick fuentes I, Yeah, I really because what's the difference between them? What are they? What are they all saying that's that different? Very, very little. right. They might argue like Jews do about you know are we more do we hate this person more that person more? But the end, the agenda is the same. You know, um, Jews run America. Jews run Israel. Jews have too much power. It's a, it's the same thing. Yeah, and Jim, Jimmy Dore was having on uh, the not, Jake Shields, who's just an open anti-Semite. And... Yeah, no, that's the thing. Um, but what do you make of my thesis about the 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 anti-Semitism's role in this more diverse America in in the far right? I think I think you're right. I think you're right. We we see people like um, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example. Or what was the name of the head of the um, Proud Boys? Uh, he was also Latino. Uh, it was. Oh. God. They, they're, they're, there's a lot of them. Uh, yeah, he's Puerto Rican, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Latinos are now voting um, for Trump. It, it, last poll I saw was 53 percent of Latinos are going to vote for Trump. Um, so yeah, I think you're right because America is more diverse. If you build your coalition of hatred just on white people, that limits your reach. Um, but you, what you can always unite people around is hatred of Jews. Jews are, uh, you know, not voting for you anyway. There's not that many of them. So that way you have a traditional whipping boy um, without losing much of a demographic. Exactly. So it, may, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. You know more about it than I do, but I definitely notice that the white supremacists are not as white as they used to be. Exactly. And I don't think American Jews understand. I think there's a deep naivety. That like, oh, we're, yeah, we're always going to be safe here. Um, and they should take a hard look at the, and it's horrible to see the, what's happening in England. They should listen to their uh, Jews in England right now and how insecure many of them feel right now. Or France, um, or what happened there? France, yeah. You just watch the videos of the guy walking with a yarmulke in Paris, and it's just disgusting the abuse and uh, i i american jews need to stop just assuming like uh, everybody's learned from the holocaust and we're, we're we're safe here i don't want to keep you thank you so much man anytime you want it was okay. a total pleasure and you've Have got a great analysis of, of these discourses okay.